Hi, I'm Alex Bellinger, and this is Small Biz Pod on Thursday, the 25th of January. This week, I hear from two authors of a new book called Mavericks at Work and uh, discover how the real story for entrepreneurship in the 21st century is not who has the who is the strongest, who has the deepest pockets, but who is the smartest, which means even small players can compete and outsmart the big guys. Uh, encouraging message and fascinating interviews with um, Bill Taylor and Polly Labar, who are not only authors of a book, but were the founders and entrepreneurs who started Fast Company magazine in the U.S., so just before we go into uh, the interview with uh, Bob Williams and Polly Labar, uh, a quick thank you to all those who've signed up to the Small Biz Pod Frapper map. They put their pin and photo on the map of the world to say where they are and that they're listening to the show. So um, thank you to Mark Keenan uh, in Swindon in England, Marcel Zapata from um, Valdivia in Chile, uh, Taylor Marrick in Milwaukee, uh, Alicia Forrest from uh, Walden in New York or New York State, uh, not quite sure. And uh, Melanie Langenham from Mainz in Germany. Uh, George Revis from Tulsa in the US. David Terrar from St Albans in the UK. And a... Uh, uh, a, a, a gringo? No, he's not a gringo. He's Gary from South Shields, dressed with a in a Mexican sombrero with a rather large cigar. And what a fetching image that is, Gary! So, thank you all for signing up. Um, thank you to those who've left comments uh, on the Small Biz Pod blog. Your feedback is really, really important to me. Um, I'm looking forward to some audio comments. Come on, send them in. It's about time. Uh, looking forward to that. One email comment that I'll read is from. Uh, Daly Irvin at Arizona State University who says I'm a new listener and I stumbled across your show while looking for articles on the internet about entrepreneurship uh, your show is great inspiration and in the few episodes I've tuned into I've learned more than I have in the three years I've spent at my expensive university uh, your interviews are great the music is good and I can't wait for more episodes keep up the good work Alex um, and um, it, Daily then goes on to uh, kind of suggest that one of the reasons why U.S. entrepreneurship is um, better established, um, more respected, if you like, is down to the fact that um, the U.S. celebrates entrepreneurship, something that has not been necessarily the case in the U.K. Um, uh, Daily following on from the discussions in the last podcast podcast with um, Professor Zoltan Atch. Okay, so there we are. Now let's go straight into the uh, interview section of the show. Okay, today um, I've got two uh, authors, uh, Bill Taylor and Polly Labar, who have written a, a really, really fascinating, insightful and inspirational book. There's the flattery over and done with at the outset. <laughs> we can end this now. <laughs> called um, Mavericks at Work, which uh, is a, a fascinating compilation of a number of, of stories of the most innovative um, businesses, large and small, um, and the most innovative thinking and the most innovative leaders that are out there and around and about today. So, uh, Bill, Polly, uh, nice to have you on Small Biz Pod today. Great to be here. Thanks. Thank you so much. Okay, so um, let's start by just saying, why did you write this book, Polly? <laughs> well, a few years ago when we started uh, this idea of, of writing the book, business had really gone through a dark and trying period. You know, we'd gone through the white-collar perp walk. There had been so much ethical wrongdoing and misconduct uh, in, in business, and we'd really seen business 
at its worst, and we felt it's time to reintroduce the power of business at its best. And the phenomenon that we were really grappling with was a profound power shift that seemed to be going on in the economy, and, and one that's so profound that I think we're just beginning to appreciate its effects, and that was that in industry after industry, the organizations and the individuals that we thought of as wild cards and outliers and upstarts as mavericks really were achieving positions of financial prosperity and market dominance. Um, and it really was this idea that originality had become the acid test of strategy, that if you want to stand out in a world of hyper competition and nonstop innovation, you really do have to stand for something truly unique. And that's when we began to grapple with this idea of mavericks and originality as a basis for competition. Is it really the sort of we're we're in an age where where it's almost the sort of de death of commodification? You know, the com the commodity market is no longer interesting. It's no longer a route to um, business success. Bill, what are, what are what are some of the examples of, of of businesses that are that are that are escaping commoditization? Well, what's so interesting about the companies we discovered and explored and write about in the book is they are in industries uh, some very old fashioned. Uh, uh, industries, whether it's airlines or sandwich shops or whatever the case would be. It's, it's not that innovation is only the function of the very cutting edge, most internet oriented, most digital industries. And in, in fact, I think the basic goal of the book is to encourage people to rethink and devise radically new answers to some very old basic questions that Basically, are the building blocks of every company in every industry. What is it? Is, you know, what does it mean to have a winning strategy, a winning competitive strategy in a world that's more competitive than ever? How do you connect with your customers when your customers have more choices, more alternatives, are being bombarded by more messages than they can possibly handle? Everybody agrees. Uh, their companies are desperate for innovation, new ideas. Well, what's the smartest way to unleash innovation? Where do new ideas come from? And maybe the most basic question at all, of all, how do you attract more than your fair share of the best people in your business? How do you win the battle for talent? Now, these are hardly new, you know, crazy questions. These are every entrepreneur, every small business has to ask and answer those questions. I think what's exciting about the age we live in is this idea of getting away from commodification. It's not just commodity thinking in your product. It's, you know what, there really are new ways to think about our strategy. There are new ways to think about how we connect with our customers. And so the the mavericks we write about in this book are rethinking not just, as I say, their products, but every element of how you do business, how you build a company, how you connect with your customers. And so I think it's a really uh, exciting time again to to be thinking about business, to be in the business of building uh, a company because I think the the fundamental lesson of the age we're in is yes it is still the case that the strong take from the weak it's it's great to have big factories deep pockets huge marketing budgets but the great news for small business in particular is the real story of our time is that the smart take from the strong that the it's the job of every one of your listeners out there not to outmuscle the competition but to outthink the competition. And you can outthink yeah. the competition all different elements of doing business. Mm -hmm. So the end of commodity thinking doesn't just speak to products. It speaks to every aspect of how you're building your company. Perhaps one of the the the, the, 
the most intriguing and, and I perhaps famous examples is the is the Goldcorp example. Polly, do you want to tell us about Goldcorp and, and what open source means for business? Sure. Well, let's talk about the idea behind the story of Goldcorp. As, as Bill said, one of the questions that we address is where do great ideas come from? How do you innovate as an organization? And it really comes down to the character of leadership inside the organization and how you organize work. And, and one thing that we found among Mavericks, and this may sound kind of counterintuitive at first, was that they all demonstrated this wonderful, uh, remarkable intellectual humility uh, in, in terms of how they went about their business and how, how they uh, thought about where great ideas come from. And this you know, it's very different from uh, the the old form of leadership, which is really essentially about having a big ego and thinking you're the smartest person yeah. in the room. You know, the kind of Donald Trump school of leadership that we've all been afflicted with for so long. <laughs> uh, and, and the maverick uh, approach was sort of a complete mind flip of that. And the mantra we came to use. Uh, in the book was this idea that nobody is as smart as everybody, that maverick leaders really understand that great ideas can come from anyone, anywhere in the world. And so they work, they work very hard to surround themselves with the smartest people in the world, people who are smarter than they are, and to create mechanisms and invitations for inviting the contribution of the best ideas from the most people around the world. And that's kind of an open source idea. The, the term that we borrow from open source is architecture of participation. Participation. What's your compelling invitation for to the contribution of, of all these people around the world? And, and probably the leader that we found who sort of most intuitively grasped this idea of nobody is as smart as everybody is Rob McEwen uh, from Goldcorp. And this is a, this is a fantastic story, I think, because to think about the, the applications of open source innovation in, in the gold mining uh, industry. Uh, so Goldcorp is a publicly traded gold mine in, in northern Canada. And, and when Rob McEwen took over, it wasn't uh, doing all that well. I mean, there were all kinds of things, a horrible history of labor relations. They knew the gold was there, but they didn't have a way of ex- extracting it efficiently or cost effectively. And they did what great organizations and leaders do. They sit around a table with a bunch of executives, the best in the world, and said, you know, how do we solve this problem? And somewhere during that process, Rob McEwen said, you know, I'm not actually going to come up with an answer sitting here around a blank sheet of paper. I've got to get out of here, get out of my chair, get out of the office. And he took himself down to MIT Sloan School of Executive Education and took a a week-long course in open source uh, Linux uh, software Mm -hmm. programming. Kind of a strange thing Mm. uh, for Mm. for a a leader to do. But again, it's this idea of being intellectually curious about things that may have nothing to do with your job. And at that time, Linux was this kind of weird, fringe, edgy thing. And he sat there for a week and sort of said, what am I doing here? And who are these weirdos? And um, sort of halfway through the week, he, you know, the light bulb, the proverbial light bulb went off over his head. And he said, you know, we really could use the ideas behind open source, this idea that there's this whole class of software that's been built on the volunteer contributions of people, people who aren't getting paid. It's not their job, but they're contributing to this project because it's meaningful, because they're working with their peers, the best in the world, because they're getting recognition. So we ran back to Toronto and met with all of his folks and said, here, I've got it. This is the idea. We're going to put all our proprietary data out on the the web, gigabytes and gigabytes of geological data, and we're going to invite the world, the geologists and scientists around the world, to weigh in on it, tell us how and where to to mine for gold. Um, so they, you know, after after much protestation, I mean, they said, you know, put our, put our data out on the web. No way. It's our proprietary data. They actually launched the Gold Corp Challenge uh, and met with overwhelming success, thousands of people downloaded the data, about 150 supplied really wonderful um, uh, proposals about where and how 
to mine for gold. But the really interesting thing was that these proposals came from disciplines and people and places that Rob McEwen and his fellow geologists would never have thought of mm. as sources for ideas around gold mining. And the winners of the Gold Corp Challenge were two geologists from Perth, Australia, a place he'd never been, yeah. people he'd never set eyes upon, yeah. uh, who came up with insights that are so profound that Gold Corp is the richest gold mine in, in the world. It was really amazing. Uh, 50 people from 52 different countries wound up downloading this data and submitting uh, entries. And several of them literally had never stepped foot in Canada. All of them had never worked for uh, Gold Corp. But it, it was really remarkable, uh, the transformation on individual lives, mm -hmm. I have to say. I mean, the winners really, uh, the, these fellows from uh, Perth, Australia, that uh, Polly talked about are now, they've now got a publicly traded company based in mm -hmm. Canada mm -hmm. based on the vi visibility they got from this, but also the transformation of, of Gold Corp. When Rob bought the company, its market cap was like $180 million uh, U.S. It's now $6 billion mm -hmm. U.S. So part of it is the gold is going from $160 an ounce to $600 an ounce. <laughs> yeah. so it's nice when that, I like it when that happens, but, um, but if they didn't know where the gold was, that would be of no yeah, interest yeah. to them, right? right. So, uh, you know, yeah. good, it, it, good things happen to people who think outside the box. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And Bill's point is that it's not just about the intellectual humility. It's this wonderful generosity. So it's not just about opening yourself up to outside ideas. You know, how can I get more ideas? It's also how can I give back to mm -hmm. the people who are contributing. And Rob McEwen is the ultimate generous leader. He didn't just give them their prize money and say sayonara. He actually created opportunities mm -hmm. for them to really build their career and build their disciplines and make the whole industry better. Yeah. It's interesting though, isn't it? That I mean, obviously, um, the Gold Corp idea was a, a stunning idea and a stunning success. It hasn't been repeated in the, in that industry. Right. And it hasn't, it's quite rarely been repeated elsewhere. Right. Now, a lot of the examples in this book, are, they're very, very positive. They're very powerful, but they aren't repeated that often you right. feel you feel looking at them that quite a number of the examples are are you know unique almost right. um so you know starbucks yeah okay arguably there are there are there are there are a lot of coffee brands now uh, not a lot of coffee retailers that have kind of tried to model themselves right. on starbucks but um do maverick ideas have in essence, have have their own sort of um, uniqueness about them, which means you've got to keep on coming up with uh, with a with something new to be different. Because there's a, there's quite a lot in the book about kicking against um, your competitors who are, or particularly, I mean, there are examples of ING Direct right. um, and Commerce Bank, where the tr fantastically traditional um, stayed industry and these two. Two banks have really sort of kicked against right. uh, the, the sort of prevailing mood. How repeatable is this, the innovation in this book, or do you need to find your own innovation? Right. <sighs> that's a great question. I'm going to give you a Sorry, long question. That's okay. It's okay. <laughs> but it is in some in some sense, though, it's the ultimate question. Yeah. And and so let me give you a multi layered answer. The first thing is it's so funny when I don't know about you, but when I, uh, when when I go out and talk to business people and so on. Um, their first reaction is, well, this, this is all great stuff, but if you have an original idea like this, it, it's so easy for other people to, to copy it. So what happens then? And, which is kind of an odd response because so few people have original ideas to begin with. I mean, you're work okay, I'm not going to be creative because if I'm creative, people are going right. to copy it. So yeah. why bother? And you notice that people don't actually end up copying. Well, no, but no, that's, no. that's the amazing thing yeah. is, um, it turns out, just because you can copy something, other people can't copy it doesn't, doesn't mean that they will. And, and you pointed out very, uh, accurately on the Gold Corp thing. Why, why wouldn't 
lots of other mining companies which have got property which is never quite delivered the way they had hoped to do it and they've got this data why not just go ahead and do their version of this and and by the way it would be even easier to do it because rob has proved that it it works for both sides so uh, why not do that you'd mentioned commerce bank and i could give you the whole commerce bank story but this is a a bank, a retail bank in the United States that essentially wants to do for banking what Starbucks did for coffee, make it a, f- a fun, interesting, well-designed, engaging experience. And one of their many, many little things they've done, and you add them all up and it becomes something big, is um, I don't know how it is in the U.K., but in the U.S., if you go in uh, you know, with like a big uh, jar of coins or one of your kids' piggy banks and say, count my coins for me, you know, uh, and Commerce Bank said rather than uh, looking at it as a cost to be cut, looking at it as a relationship to be enhanced. So they they built and put in in all of their branches, which they call stores, uh, these things called the Penny Arcade. Very fun looking, uh, little gizmo bells and whistles. Kind of kind of looks like something from Charlie and the Chocolate Factory sort of deal. And you go in with your coins and you pour them in and wheel spin and music plays and out spits a little paper ticket and go get your coins. Now. The big picture is if we create an experience that people love and enjoy and so on, they're going to want to come here. And, oh, by the way, we don't have to give them the the highest rate on their certificate of deposit or we don't have to give them the lowest rate on their car loan. And so Commerce Bank doesn't compete on price. If you want to get the highest investment for your savings, you don't go to Commerce Bank Uh because they're doing all this other stuff. And so one reason stuff doesn't get copied as often as it might is is specific practices that are undeniably successful don't get copied because they're not in sync with a bigger mm. mindset that just shuts the door on all this uh, stuff. And so what what I would tell uh, entrepreneurs and innovators is you are going to be – if if you can come up with even little, little – I mean, so most industries are so drab, so colorless, so totally – uh, ruled by convention was that even small innovations can come up with, can get big attention in your business. Mm-hmm. And don't be afraid to do it because you're going to be amazed at how few people are in fact going to copy you. And so to me, what I'm impressed by is not how hard it is to do this, but how easy it is to do it. If you just get your head in that mm-hmm. game and saying, you know, even small innovations will have a big impact and really resonate with people. And speaking of getting your head in the game, just to sort of add to this multi-layered uh, answer, when you ask about originality and doing new things, I think, you know, innovation is, is, is on the one hand, it's about launching off in new directions and always trying to do something new. And that's a challenge you spoke to. But I also think it's about being grounded in a core sense of purpose. So the reason why commerce mm-hmm. is always coming up with these wonderful ideas around service and product innovation is because everybody in that organization is grounded in a core sense of purpose, which is how do we create the most exciting and rewarding experience for customers when they come in to our bank, not how do we cut costs and and get the most out of our customers. And this speaks to a core idea at the heart of the book, which is Mavericks don't start businesses thinking, how do we make money? They start businesses thinking, how do we make a difference. And and winning companies today really stand for important ideas. They're not just about churning out innovative products and services. And those are ideas that really shape the future of their industry and, and reshape the sense of what's possible among customers, among employees, among the, the greater investing uh, world. And we call this idea in the book strategy is advocacy behind mm. every great 
company is a distinct and disruptive sense of purpose. And disruptive because it's really about resetting the agenda for competition inside the industry by setting the terms of renewal and reform mm. to, to provide really a, an antidote to the worst practices of their industry, an alternative to all of the Me Too thinking that's out there. And if you're grounded in this core sense of purpose, this sense of advocacy, if you're doing more than building a company but actually advancing a cause, you, you're already ahead of the game and it's always you know your pivot foot that you can refer to when you're trying mm. to do new things and innovate for the customer. So I think there's this wonderful tension between you know what you're rooted in and then launching off into new directions. Just to use sort of Guy Kawasaki mention or, or, or phrase, making meaning, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, and it doesn't have to be anything incredibly cosmic. It's not like no. to, to, to start a a uh, or to, to do something really so you have, it's, it's all about changing the world so much. It's just somehow it really begins with your individual passion. And I think yeah. this is, uh, per, again, particularly relevant for entrepreneurs and small business people. And I, I, uh, in addition to other things, I, I teach a, an MBA class back in the United States. And it's so interesting to me. Every time I teach a class or do Q and A's, the students say, Oh, I want to know what's the hot field? What's the next new mm. area? And to me, the answer is the hot field. There's nothing to do with the hot field. Is what do you really care about mm. as a, as a, an entrepreneur, a, a business person? And do you have a, just your own unique line of sight into an industry or a field that uh, other people don't see yet. I mean, we all know the idea of uh, deja vu. You go into a, a new situation and feel like I've been here mm. before. What these mavericks have, and I don't know if this is a made-up word or not, but is a sense of vujade. They go, they go. <laughs> That's in, a made-up word. Well, I, you know, actually, I think, I think to credit that to IDO. Well, Tom but Kelly. but actually, he credits it to uh, George Carlin, the American oh, okay, comedian, apparently. But Vujade is you go into a familiar situation and you see it with completely new eyes. Yeah. And I think that is really what entrepreneurship is about today. I mean, ultimately, do you see something in your industry mm. that other people really don't see? And once you can open your eyes to new possibilities, it's amazing how many opportunities there are to mm. upset the apple cart mm. in your industry. <laughs> Was that one of your uh, bullshit? That, that, sounded, that sounded like a bit of bullshit bingo going on there. No, 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 we're, just, we're just talking about something about you know what there are certain countries where the book is out now where people people are concerned about it. you seem to want to upset the apple cart. I'm just saying I, we yell out the apple if people are selling apples on the street. We're coming by. We're going to tip over your apple cart. Look out! That's cool. Well, I mean, a disru disruption is a sort of key theme, yeah. as is as is passion and yes. the combination of disruption yes. and passion. If you have that within your business, then you're off off to a good right. start. And if you don't have both together, that's a problem. So, yeah. so that's that's the whole point. That it's a combo platter deal. And but in addition to that, and um, what I what, there's a quote in here which I won't flick through the pages right. now and quote it precisely, but. Um, it applies very much to the world of, to, to a certain extent, to the world of sort of blogging and podcasting and social media, and that is the issue of transparency. Right. Now, transparency is actually, a, in terms of leadership and in terms of organisation, is also a, quite a big theme within the book. Mm -hmm. um, are the best leaders actually facilitators rather than leaders? Really, the essence of leadership today is demonstrating to people every single day that they deserve your trust. And I, and I think a huge part of that uh, is being more open and mm. transparent than you've ever been. And so there's a great, 
And I think the the fellow you're you're talking about in the book is this guy Darren Carroll, who's mm. the founder of a company called Innocentive, and it's very much in the open source spirit where they've got you know a hundred thousand scientists and engineers all around the world, and they can they they offer ideas, solutions for money to technical challenges or problems being posted by other companies. But you know, as Darren describes his job, he is essentially the leader of this volunteer community all around the world of people who don't have to be part of this operation, but choose to because they're excited about the opportunity and they believe in what he's doing and so on. Well, to be honest, it seems to me that even if you're running a company where people are being paid a salary to work for you, you still have to think of yourself as being in charge of a volunteer community because, you know, in a world driven by projects and so on, nobody has to be on a project they don't want to be on. They can maneuver themselves out of it. Um, if you're running a project or running an operation that people are really eager to be part of, they'll figure out how to get themselves onto that project or into that uh, operation. And so the ways you conduct yourself as a leader, first of all, um, uh, you know, sort of everyday uh, behaving in the way you expect other people to uh, behave, being more transparent than you've uh, ever run, getting beyond the kind of zero sum mm. logic of for everybody else to, to, for me to win, everybody else has to yeah. lose. You know, one of Daryl's quotes is, and if you're a zero sum leader, ultimately what you get out of the value you create is, is zero. Um, and so I think there is a lot of this really doesn't work unless you as the entrepreneur you as a CEO or you as a leader really rethinks your own style. And it's hard because, as Polly said earlier, part of the deal of being an entrepreneur is, again, there's a fine line between having passion and acting like you're a know-it-all. Mm. And, and like, you know, hey, it's my way or the highway kind of deal. Mm. And that style of leadership just doesn't cut it in a world where, in a world of blogs and podcasts and even stuff that the outside, you know, internal employee discussions where mm -hmm. everybody, there, there are no secrets anymore. Mm -hmm. Everybody knows what's going on. Everybody's got an opinion on you as a boss and is quick to share that with others. It, it really, um, it, it creates a, 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 a different, uh, environment for leaders to do the work. But if you're in sync with it, it's amazing what you can mm -hmm. unleash. I mean, that's another one of the themes of the book is so much of business culture, culture is about power. And how do you amass it? And how do you use it? And how do you vanquish your op opposition? And, um, in, in a very real way, this book is all about freedom and how does you as a leader un don't control your people, mm. but unleash mm. them. Mm. And how do you unleash more freedom? Because it's amazing what people could come up with on their own. Okay. Now, um, just to conclude, you two were both kind of entrepreneurs, weren't you? Yes. Um, you kind of said I'm a magazine called a well, very well known, um, fast company, well known magazine read by lots of people in the States and, and well known over here too. Uh, what's your experience? That, the, 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 you know, the consumer or magazine market is hideously competitive. Right. Um, what made fast, uh, fast company, um, um, stand out? Were you mavericks or, or did you, did you come to this, uh, this later? No, I, you know, I very much, and I, I could go, you know, this, what we went through uh, starting and growing fast companies very much in sync with the ideas we're writing about in, in this book. And I really, you know, when we wanted to start the magazine, 
the first thing people said is, oh my gosh, there are thousands and thousands of magazines. Go look at a newsstand. Who in the world needs another magazine? Well, we started the magazine not because we ran our, our spreadsheets and did our hardcore financial analytics and decided if we looked at this little niche and had this little price point, it was because we had a different point of view about where business could and should be going. Uh, we felt if we created a magazine that uh, described that worldview, people would connect with us not just in a kind of an instrumental way, but to be honest about it, it sounds weird, but in an emotional way. Mm. We would become a brand with which people would affiliate saying, hey, you share my point of view, you're talking my language mm. kind of deal. And ultimately that, weirdly enough, actually happened and it became a tre tremendous financial success. And when we talked to other entrepreneurs, more than anything, they want to, oh, wow, you, you know, started the magazine and six years later sold it for $340 million. The money part, I mean, I'm not, I mean, that's great. I'm all, I'm all, I'm all for it. I would recommend that to everybody out there, but none of it started with the money and the analytics no. that came, um, that came later. And so I think to some degree in, in a very modest little way, fast company is the, the fast company adventure was very much in sync with what's going on. Uh, in the book, and I think really the experience of a fast company. Bill sort of referred to how it played in the in the world of of readers and customers and that emotional connection. It also is about a story about why people work and and how they work. I mean, this book essentially is about why people work and what, how they do great work and, and what motivates people. And, and I think the story of Fast Company very much was about people connecting with a set of passionate ideas mm. versus of versus going to work for a magazine. And in so many ways, that experience ruins you for, for all of <laughs> other forms of work. And yep. that's both a, a wonderful gift and, and, and also mm. a sort of a trying problem. But I think it speaks to the fact that we are at this, at this real turning point in the world of business where every leader and every organization really has to think not just how do I connect with customers, but how do I connect with and unleash all the people yeah. inside the organization? Mm -hmm. Because we just live in a world where there's so many opportunities and channels for talented people to express themselves, for people who never thought of themselves as talented to unearth their, their hidden dreams. Mm -hmm. And unless you tap into that in a very real way, and, and I think we did that at Fast Company and, and all of our Maverick companies do that, you're toast. So uh, it's, it ultimately uh, comes down to, to people and leadership and this very basic stuff, but fundamental stuff. And I think uh, there's, a, there's, a, there's a very good, uh, and I keep mentioning him and I will stop uh, for regular listeners, there's <laughs> a very good Hugh McLeod cartoon. I don't know whether you're familiar with Hugh. Um, Hugh McLeod. I, I had a beer with Hugh yesterday. Did you? Indeed. Yes, indeed. With, uh, which kind of... Which, geek which, day out. Yesterday was your Geek Day Out, out was it? Of course yeah. it was. You went yeah. to a museum. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. You're right. Yeah. Okay, story. a small world. But um, <laughs> he's got a very nice little Venn diagram about, you know, the, the internal culture and your customers. And the, it's... it's, it's, it's uh, penetrating that membrane so that the inside and outside the company is no, the same. You know, yes, it, it's absolutely. the same. You, yes. don't, you don't have a different culture inside as yes. outside. You know, it's. When yeah. you have a distinctive and disruptive point of view in, you know, for how you're going to present yourself yeah. in the marketplace, that fresh take, that bold line of sight that Bill was talking about, that has to appeal equally to your customers and your people. And it's kind of a, a double win situation because it, you end up not only getting the best customers, you end up hiring the best people because they're moved to come work for you uh, around that, that point of view. So it's, it's an absolutely important Idea. I mean, that is one situation where it actually is a little harder to do it this way because we certainly found it at Fast Company, which is if you want to fill, I mean, I, this, I, the way we use it in the book is brand is culture, culture is brand. Mm. That, you know, you need to have the same mindset among your, your, your employees that you have among your 
customers. What that often means is that you can't recruit employees from your competitors because they're, they're so people who work for other companies in your field are, are just so hardwired to think yeah. in, in the wrong way kind of deal. Yeah. And we very much found that at Fast Company where when we tried to hire writers and journalists from, you know, in the U.S. Business Week or Wall Street Journal or something, mm. their whole approach to why you would want to be in, and nothing wrong, I mean, I'm not saying there's nothing wrong with doing business, but the idea that we existed as a magazine to connect with our readers, to inspire our readers, to teach, that's not what traditional journalists do. They ex- they exist to, you know, afflict the comfortable and comfort the afflicted, which I got no problem <laughs> with that, right? And their idea of a great story. But we had a high, we basically, we had to, as we say, hire for attitude and train for skill. And we had to hire smart people mm. who believed in our mission and basically teach them how to be writers yeah. and journalists. Yeah. And you find that an awful lot in the maverick companies we mm. write about, that they're more concerned about character than they are about credentials. Yeah. And we can teach you how to be in the banking business. Yeah, yeah, we yeah. can teach you how to be in the airline business. We can't teach you how to care about the customer. We can't. Mm-hmm. And that is, I have to say, I, I, I think in a lot of, a lot of the things we write about are actually easier to do than you might think. But this is the one thing that is undeniably difficult, which is particularly if you are in a growing company, it's so easy to, mm. to hire just, you know, oh God, you, you went to the right school. You've got five years experience. Uh, Mark Andreessen, a, a famous uh, web developer calls it the rule of crappy people that, yeah. you know, it's, it's a lot easier to hire. So, you know, and then all of a sudden you wake up one morning and your whole company is full of crappy people. And, <laughs> yeah. and so the discipline of hiring people who don't just have the right paper credentials, but really have the same value system yeah. mindset. That is, of all the things we did at Fast Company, and I think of all the things we write about in the book, it, it turns out hiring the right people is probably the yeah. tough, yeah. you know, this yeah. internet stuff is easy. Right. Yeah, 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 Hire, yeah. You know, it's the flesh and blood humanity is yeah. what's really hard and yeah. complicated it's, still. And it's so. the hardest thing to do, but it's also the most important because each person that comes in your company, whether you're a, you know, a 75 person startup or you are a 300,000 person mm. global conglomerate, it sets the DNA for everything you do yeah. next. So it, you know, this, this is what separates the, the true mavericks from, from the uh, faux mavericks, I think. Mm. Okay. One final quick question. And it's a it's a one or two word answer only yep. from you both. Okay. Yeah. Uh, we'll see. <laughs> only because, gosh. No, yeah. No, I'm okay. I'm on, I'm I'm on I'm a half hour show, so we'll with a bit of editing. I think we'll be there. <laughs> <laughs> We're all about it. Okay. Um, yeah. And the question is uh, for for listeners, for my listeners who are who are startups or uh, small businesses, growing businesses. One from each of you. Which company should they go and find more out about? Craigslist. ING Direct. Okay. Polly, Bill, thanks very much. It was a lot of fun. Thanks. Thank you. Well, I certainly enjoyed that interview and I enjoyed their book. Go, do go and check it out. Mavericks at Work uh, by uh, William C. Taylor and Polly Labar, published by HarperCollins. So, uh, yep, I'll put a link in the show notes to, for you, any of you that are interested in taking a look at it. Um, and so uh, it's been a, a longish show today. Uh, just over 35 minutes, so let's get into, on into the music. Uh, and my choice of music this week is by an artist called Seethaski, um, and the track is called Never, and it's from the net label Monotonic, with, with very many thanks to Monotonic for letting me play it. Thank you. <laughs> 